Today on The Blackout, we talk about the ultimate small talk question, what do you do for fun? And a letter about getting on a senior colleague's bad side. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And you know that thing when you're at a poster session and you don't even look at the poster and you're just like, tell me what this is about? <laughs> well, Samin wrote an op-ed recently, which I have not read. So, Samin, <laughs> so what was your op-ed about? Wrote is a strong word. I, I played a tiny role in this. It was with uh, four other co-authors who all live in Australia and most of whom are Australian. And it was in response to uh, something that happened in Australia that is directly relevant to an episode we did two weeks, two episodes ago, um, which what happened was that there were some politicians in Australia who started talking about the replication crisis and using it as an excuse to like not look, listen to the science on climate change and on water quality and the coral reef and things like that. Um, and so, so a group of researchers um, some of the University of Melbourne, some of the University of Sydney, and I wrote a response saying that uh, the there is a replication crisis or there is a real problem, but what the politicians are saying and doing and recommending as a solution is the wrong solution, and they're co-opting basically this the replication issues for their political purposes, and if they really cared about improving science, they would be saying very different things and making very different recommendations. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because I think, I mean, in, in a way, I hope that the fact that all of us, the authors, have been on the record for a while of saying there is a problem gives us a little bit more credibility because I think a lot of anti-science people are used to a response that says, no, 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 science is perfect. How dare you criticize science or blah, blah, blah. And right. we're saying, no, there is a problem in science, but it's not what you say it is. And the solution is not what you say it is. Um, and so I think, I hope that, that that gives our response a little bit more yeah. Do you have like a a quick way to respond to like this sort of like generalized skepticism that can arise from like the response to the replication crisis? Are there are there like recommendations, maybe this is a really big question, but are there recommendations that you would give to like the general public Ooh. to discern between things they should believe and things they shouldn't? I don't if the, if they dig a little deeper, I don't have a good answer, but my shallow answer is like just because social psych is messed up doesn't mean all sciences are and i think actually we've been too polite or other sciences have been too polite at least to my face to say stop saying this is about science because it's really not necessarily about all sciences um and even within psych like we don't talk much about the fact that social psych looked a lot worse in cognitive psych in the reproducibility project and there's other reasons to think social psych is worse off than cognitive psych or some areas of psych are worse off than others, at least with respect to false positives. Um, and we don't talk about that much, but I think this is the risk of not talking about it, not being honest, that, look, the problems are probably, and in some cases we know they are, worse in some d- domains than others. And if we don't want people to like put climate science in the same bin as priming studies, then we need to be honest about the fact that there are different levels of problem. Is there good reason to think that climate science is, is better? I mean, there's a there's an incredible consensus, and so I think that that's one thing. But I'm not um, sure that's a good way to... I don't think that's the thing I would appeal to, because there was incredible consensus on social priming before the replicability crisis, and also because debate is a sign of a healthy field, not necessarily <laughs> total consensus. Yeah, I don't think it's good in isolation, but I think it's one marker. Well, I think this is why we need more meta science. So I would like to have more stuff to point to to be able to say this is how climate science is or isn't different from other sciences. I'm just going Mm -hmm. on authority. I'm going on people I trust tell me that climate science, at least. So there is, I think there are areas in climate science that are controversial and where people are overclaiming and hyping and all that. But the basics of like there is human caused climate change and things like that. And we know also, some of the causes. I just want to go back to, do you think if we pulled psychologists, social psychologists in 2010, there would have been a lot of consensus on social priming? I'm really, I'm really curious. I don't know, but in the published the literature there was. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm sure. misremembering and there were some criticisms. Like there are criticisms of some areas of social, like, like there's always been criticisms of implicit attitudes and a few mm-hmm. other areas. So it's not like there was total consensus on all the hot things, but... Um, I think there would have been quite a bit of consensus for the general idea. 
and especially if you're asking what people said in public versus what they said at the bar the conferences yeah i mean i think this is yeah this is why i think consensus is helpful to look at but it's not determinative and 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 this is really where i mean i think we know a good amount about why even as an outsider you should trust climate science more than you might some other things right that it's how how they got to that consensus they got to it by being open with the data by being open with models by you know confronting and refuting very strong criticisms from groups that had a lot of opportunity to make them and a lot of backing but to do countervailing science. I only know that because I believe people who say that. I haven't actually seen yeah, data. Yeah, me too. So I would like metrics on those things. I would like to be able to point to a paper, maybe this paper exists, that shows the prevalence of open data, of adversarial collaboration, of rebuttals and criticisms and replications and things like that in climate science versus in social science. And I can say, look, these are the indicators of a healthy field and climate science looks like this and social psych looks like that. So don't generalize across the two or whatever. I mean, uh, yeah, maybe metrics would help quantify it. I don't, I think, I feel like this is one of those things. It's like when, you know, Paul Meal says like, if there's really an effect, you don't need significance testing yeah. because you'll try it a bunch of ways and it'll be there yeah. and you'll see it. And I, I feel like the the like the the solidity of climate science and the transparency and rigor and openness of the process that got there is so out in the open. Yeah. I don't need a metric. Like <clears throat> if I, you know, like you said earlier, social psych versus cognitive. Um, you know, it, it's like that might people have made that claim. It wasn't a significant difference in the reproducibility project. It was, there was a percentage difference, but whatever, people have different arguments. It's like, yeah, okay, if that's worth pursuing, I don't know how you've operationalized social and cognitive, but whatever. Um, like, yeah, okay, maybe for a meta-science study, I'd want a metric. This is one of those cases where it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, the what's the effect yeah. size of the sky is blue and gravity. Yeah, but it would be small, useful you know. for rhetorical purposes too. Both, I would like to actually see the data, but also it would be useful if I, if, I, if I could point people to something instead of saying, trust me, climate science is different. Um, mm-hmm. But. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, I, I, maybe for me, climate science isn't a good, uh, isn't a good test case just because it's so extreme. Yeah. There are a few things like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that, you know, that I'm trying to think like other things that are like that you know, like vaccine Mm -hmm. efficacy and safety is another area where um, I don't know how, like you can look at the history and you can document it really well. And I think, I think historians of science have a lot to contribute Mm -hmm. in these areas that they can show how an idea, um, you know, progressed and was challenged and and whatever. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, I'm not, you know, I haven't tried, but but I don't know how you'd make a metric that would capture both of those things in a really useful way. But, you know, someone should try. Yeah, that's what when my meta science talk, which there'll be a video of eventually was kind of about that trying to say okay. it's, it's a challenge for meta scientists. And I think it's something we should try to do is is provide quantitative measures of how fields are doing on the things that we think are indicators of a healthy field so that mm-hmm. we have data to speak to. Like, yeah. Not just replication, yeah. but a lot of other things too. Right. Yeah. But it would still be nice to also have um, have metrics for evaluating individual findings, right? Because it's a little dissatisfying to say like, okay, this finding came out of this field, so I can trust it. Yeah, I'm just more pessimistic about that. Hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's risky to generalize from a field is generally trustworthy right. to a specific finding is trustworthy. But I think a lot of people want to know about entire fields. Like, should I be paying attention to what nutrition research says about what I should eat or should I just not pay attention and <laughs> do what I want? Yeah, and, fair. Right. Um, yeah. Although I, w- I guess would, I mean, it feels like a metric would also, it would be important to also capture heterogeneity because yeah. that field, there are people in nutrition who are, I think, trying really hard to do rigorous work. And I wouldn't want to, you know, um, I wouldn't want to do something that would like dismiss what they're doing and sort of throw the baby. Yeah, you would definitely want a way of tracking the metrics over time so that you could allow fields a chance to recover or improve or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting question. What people who are the outlier rigorous person in a really not rigorous field should do, because they're still publishing and 
they have to publish in their field as journals probably which means they're not being held to standards that we would want i don't know yeah so i think i agree that i don't want to throw them in with the less rigorous rest of their field but i don't know that we should totally forgive them for operating in a field that is messed up i also but we should do an episode on metrics sometime because <laughs> I, I feel like this is something I don't I don't know I feel like on the surface I have some disagreements with you Samin I don't know like I don't I, know I where I stand on metrics a, if you made a metric of field level replicability yeah it would there be would gamed. be a huge incentive yeah. for collective gaming yeah. because funding agencies are going to look at those things so the field all gets I together and yeah. says we're going to try to look good on this metric I don't know where I stand on metrics but I think there should be many many of them. At a minimum, if there's going to be metrics, there shouldn't be just one. There should be a lot of different indicators. They should be combined in a lot of different ways so that it's clear that, like, you can combine them in one way and get one ranking. You can combine them in a different way with different weightings and get a different ranking. I think that would at least make it clear that there isn't, like, one true answer and it would be harder to game. But yeah, there's a book someone recommended on Twitter called The Tyranny of Metrics. I can't remember who recommended it on Twitter, but they wrote a whole thread and it sounded really interesting. Someday Mm -hmm. I would like to read that book. Well, uh, should we move on to our letter of the week? Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. cool. So uh, this letter is a little bit longer than usual, but I think it's a really interesting case. So bear with me. And should we should we just say at the outset that we sort of edited and condensed a little bit? It's right. still on the long side, but just for transparency that mm-hmm. this isn't verbatim in full what we got. Right, exactly. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I'm an early career researcher, and without me being aware... Aware of this, I recently antagonized one of the most influential professors in my professional field. Professor X was involved in one of my grant projects for a while as a consultant, but after a while he sent me an email saying that he will not be able to contribute to it anymore. I found it a bit strange that he did not give any reasons, but did not make too much of it. After the fellowship, I got a position elsewhere and I moved. A few weeks after moving, I sent an email to Professor X asking for his advice about a research question. He responded in a way that made it clear that he was very mad at me. This claim came as a complete shock to me. Up to that point, I had no idea that Professor X had such feelings. After I got over the initial shock, I responded by saying I would like to understand what he means and why he has such feelings, and that I never intended to cause anything wrong to him, but I got no response. After two months, I sent him another email asking for a personal meeting so that I can understand his position and try to make things right. The only response I got was, sorry, but I don't want to interact with you anymore. That was our last contact. I feel sad that I antagonized a colleague whose work I admire, and I feel the loss of not being able to collaborate with him later. Also, because of the large power discrepancy, I feel intimidated. Professor X is on multiple grant review panels relevant for me, and he is an editor or reviewer at many of the journals that I would like to publish in. I have talked to a few colleagues about this who suggested that I should do something to please him, like invite him to a conference as a keynote where I am one of the organizers or make some other gesture to him. But I don't feel comfortable with this, especially as I don't know the reason for his hard feelings with me. A senior colleague who has collaborated with him previously offered to mediate between us, but I am not sure whether that is a good idea. What do you suggest about how I can handle this situation? Best wishes, Anonymous. Usually you say wow, something after the letter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so part of, yeah, and part of what we cut out of the letter were some of the details about, um, I guess maybe the, the person in the letter speculating about what they could have done to antagonize this colleague. Um, but I think the maybe more interesting point to focus on um, is the this person's repeated efforts to sort of understand what they did to upset this person and this person um, sort of like shutting them down and not revealing um, what what they did wrong and putting them in a position where they now feel like they've um, alienated a senior colleague, but not, not giving them any chance to sort of like, uh, I guess, make the situation better or understand what had gone wrong. Um, and so I guess my initial reaction to this is that the senior colleague is putting this um, this person in a very unfair position. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me with the other context, too, that the senior person is just very, very thin skinned that whatever the junior person did, it, it was certainly not intentional and probably not very serious. And that this is by compared to average and overreaction. And it, it's interesting because it raises like 
questions about well first personality and then like the ethical component of if someone's disagreeable and holds grudges and is in a position of power and then does that to early career researchers like they actually have an obligation not to do that in my opinion um which is yeah it's more responsibility than we put on you know lower status people but i think that's what comes with the power that this person has so i think it's interesting we talk a lot about bullying and things like that but this kind of thing i think happens all the time maybe less overtly Mm -hmm. this person seems to be very very honest about how angry they are but i think this is this is an ethical issue for the senior person and and we don't really talk about it that way we like tolerate that people just have these personalities and you have to tiptoe around them and stroke their ego and whatever like the fact that someone recommended that the letter writer invite them as a keynote or things like that just shows like we're used to high status people with big egos and having to accommodate them and i think it's really bad so i definitely don't think the letter writer should do that um to play devil's advocate and to be clear i don't take this position at all but i'm just curious what you guys would say in response to this so what if somebody were to say like um this senior person is allowed to decide who they want to associate with or not and if they decide that they don't like someone or somebody has wronged them they're allowed to um like yeah. not interact with them anymore. I think they should reassure... And they don't have to provide an explanation. In this case, they had a re- relationship, and uh-huh. I think they should not imply and maybe even go to the lengths of reassuring them that this isn't like going buy- like, to influence... It sounds like this will influence how the senior person reviews this person's papers, and, and I right. worried that the senior person is also going to like spread negative rumors about the letter writer and things like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can't remember if that's from stuff we cut out of the letter or if everything that's relevant to that was left in, but that's the impression I got. And I think that's what would be unethical to like hold a grudge to the point of then letting it affect your evaluations, of the person, the opportunities you give them, et cetera, without telling them and giving them a chance to correct it. So if they did something that's really so bad that it should affect your evaluations of them in the future, then I think you should tell them what it was. And if it wasn't mm-hmm. that bad, then if you don't want to tell them what it was, or if it wasn't that bad, then you can't hold it against them in context where you have power over them. Right. Yeah, that seems fair. Um, yeah. Do you have... It feels... Go ahead, Sanjay. It, so I can imagine two kind of categories of precipitating events that feel a little bit different. One is something that actually was a transgression but it was taken out of proportion, right? So, so I'm, I'm presuming that the letter writer, if they had really done something bad, would know it. So I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Most people, that's the case. Obviously some people, you know, uh, not everybody, that's the case, but I'm gonna presume that that is. So, so either it w- was something that you're not supposed to do, but this person just was miffed by it. And that happens sometimes. Some people are just like that. Sometimes there's a power dynamic where it's like, it's a small thing, but it's like, how dare you do that to me because I'm a big shot so-and-so. So that that's one category of thing. And if that's what happened and the senior person is going around talking trash and if they're being honest about the thing, everyone's going to be like, what the fuck, dude? Like this person didn't answer your email. and Now you're telling me never to work with them. Like, fuck you. Right. That's one possibility. Um, hopefully uh, that's how people would respond. The, you know, another possibility is that it's imagined. And I've seen stuff like that happen where. You know, one of the things I have no idea if this is what's going on, but part of the history that the writer talks about was having worked on some grants. So they were developing ideas together. Mm-hmm. People, I see people not infrequently have suspicions or complaints about people stealing ideas, yeah. where in my view, the idea is really like at the level at which Cheap. the idea was shared is super common and. Mm-hmm. It's not exclusive to anyone. It was sort of obvious, like the actual intellectual work is in turning that into a study or fleshing it out, not in like, let's, I have a broad idea that we should study these two variables mm-hmm. in relation to mm-hmm. each other. Oh my God, I own that. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've seen that enough times yeah. and it's tough because idea stealing really does, I think probably happen maybe more in some well, fields than others. and there's a others. lot of So it's area. like, and there's a lot of, yeah, yeah. And so so you know that's so there i'm not saying it's that but there's this category of things so the one possibility is this is just somebody who takes something out of proportion the other is that they've actually confabulated something or and like you said i mean there's a gray zone so it could be a little bit of both but um uh it sort of feels like in either case like the the letter writer has tried to reach out to this person right and been rebuffed a couple of times and and so i think in terms of 
And the person has explicitly said, I don't want to interact with you anymore. So I think in terms of like, I, I would take that mm -hmm. and not try to invite them to be a keynote speaker and not try to do whatever, because, you know, when you're annoyed with someone and they're trying to like mm -hmm. make it up to you and you're still annoyed with them, you, like in legitimate cases, it's like, okay, dude, I'm going to get over it, but please stop. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I think we've all been there and this is that times 10. Mm -hmm. with no rationale and so i would say like yeah leave the person alone yeah um but the i i think the it would be helpful and the person mentions that there's a senior colleague who's collaborated with this person before offered mm -hmm. to mediate i might not necessarily ask that person to mediate because mediate means trying to reestablish a relationship but if if this person is sort of someone that the letter writer can trust just to be on the lookout for them so that if there's anything they ought to know, like this person's going around bad mouthing them, or this person was, you know, uh, um, they were on a grant panel together and mm -hmm. saw this person being unfair or whatever, yeah. that might be a helpful thing to do. Yeah, I mean, maybe like again, I don't know why I sort of <clears throat> again sort of playing devil's advocate, but I wonder. So you guys mentioned this, um, the idea that this could be like, you know somebody just has a personality that causes them to treat everybody this way or something like that. But I agree with you, Sanjay, that sometimes pretty big miscommunications can happen around ideas and idea stealing and things like that. Um, I've definitely like witnessed situations where there were pretty big miscommunications and part of that happens because um, people just forget. They like forget what they discussed with people. They forget their arrangements with people. Um, and they also forget where they heard ideas. And so they mm -hmm. like, I've definitely done this where I've been like, oh, I had this great idea. And then like, it was something that somebody else told me. Mm -hmm. um, and so like maybe, I don't know, if this person has a sense of Professor X's personality and whether this is like the way that he generally is or whether this is like a very idiosyncratic reaction and for some reason professor x has like had this really extreme reaction in this case but it could be a misunderstanding then maybe I, this as i continue to elaborate on this scenario it seems so unlikely but yeah maybe in that case it would be um productive to try to to have a colleague mediate but but miscommunication I, I that implies seems... that both parties were acting in good faith and here one party refused to communicate so yep i feel You're like right. that's not You're right a miscommunication is like a unwillingness to communicate but yeah yeah i mean i think almost right. for sure there's some kind of quote-unquote misunderstanding where the professor x has an understanding that yeah, the letter writer doesn't share um right yeah you're right i'm imagining a situation where the where the senior colleague would be interested in in repairing right. their relationship and you're right it, their their response suggests that they're not yeah. interested in doing that I think like one piece of advice I have in situations like these is for the person in the letter writer situation to not let this, try not to let this affect too much how much they go to conferences and socialize with people and meet, you know, people who might know Professor mm -hmm. X and things like that. Obviously, if Professor X starts bullying you or something like that, then, then I think it's totally fine to avoid those situations. But short of that, I think there's a risk there. Like if professor X is either explicitly or implicitly like spreading bad information about you, then I think putting yourself out there, giving people a chance to get to know you for yourself, I think is really important because I think there are a lot of people who might just give professor X the benefit of the doubt and have a negative impression of you. But if they met you, that would be stronger than hearsay from professor X. Mm -hmm. I do think you're right, Sanjay, that like if I heard someone like professor X, smearing a junior colleague i do hope that i would ask more specific questions and try to figure out like if there's really something there or if it's just someone being a jerk and hopefully mm -hmm. if professor x is saying negative things like people are holding that to a relatively high standard of like okay you're saying that we shouldn't give this person the grant can you tell me what's wrong with their proposal or what yeah why you think they're not worthy of it or whatever i think although this is maybe like not the most satisfying response to the question or advice for what the, the junior colleague should do. I do think that's like a really productive thing to take from this letter is that um, these like reputational spreading rumors, I guess, about people or um, 
talking about people in ways that affect their reputation can be really costly, especially for junior people. But I think like, I think that it's very easy to like, if your friend or um, somebody that you like is talking about somebody that you don't know to just sort of like take that at face value and not question it. I think it takes like a second to step back and realize like that this has like, those kinds of things have real consequences for people and, um, and that you should be skeptical, especially if somebody is, is or saying something negative. Ask for someone. concrete information so that you can, yeah, right. to, if yeah. you trust the, the facts that the person's giving you, then at least you can make up your own mind about how serious those things are or whatever. But even then, you're only getting one side of it. Right. Yeah. And I would also just, like, extend my sympathy to the letter writer yeah. because I think this is true of a lot of people. This is certainly true of me that I find it, the knowledge or even suspicion that someone's mad at me is incredibly aversive. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's just really uncomfortable. Oh, I feel the same way. Yeah. To feel like someone's upset with you and... And I think our advice is kind of like a pretty like wait and see yeah. message. Like, and I understand the impulse to want to repair the relationship. So I just want to say I'm like sympathetic to the discomfort, even if the best thing to do is to kind of like ask allies to listen out for you, but otherwise yeah. try to like move on with your life. Um, yeah. I understand yeah. that that's, I identify you know, that's like unpleasant. Very strongly with this letter writer. Like I would be, I would really dislike the situation and I would feel like <laughs> really uncomfortable not being able to do anything about it. Yeah. And, and I'm glad they wrote to us and in their email, they weren't anonymous. So at least we know who it is. And I feel like I at least <laughs> feel like I have enough information that I would want to like try to help this person if I was in a position to do so. So like, mm. That's why I think putting yourself out there a little bit is really important because like I know a little bit about this person and I have a positive impression. And so then, and now I also know that they're facing these unfair obstacles or what I th I'm pretty sure are unfair. Um, mm -hmm. And so then you can develop. Wait, did you just, did you just pull a New York times on our letter writer? Are I you just like said I know providing a little bit about identifying them. details? <laughs> I just said I know <laughs> a, a little bit about them. That yeah. doesn't, that doesn't reveal whether I know a little bit about them from the letter or beyond the letter or. I feel like this is like shit's moving so fast. I just made a reference to something that was in the news 24 hours ago from when we're recording. Yeah. And by next week when this comes out, nobody's going to even remember yeah. anymore what happened. Yeah. They're going to be like, why did I cancel my New York Times subscription again? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the perils of not doing a same day delivery podcast, I guess. Trying to, trying to work in news references and pop culture that moves too fast. Cool. We should well, do a uh, live episode. It will be the first episode <laughs> where we say like a bunch of inappropriate stuff that we regret. I, I, I have, I shouldn't say this because then people are going to, if they like the idea, they're going to push us to do it. I, I've sort of like toyed with in my imagination, like what if we did a live call-in episode? Um, oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. That I don't know fun. how we would handle the like technology logistics. Yeah. I also feel like... Uh, I'm not sure I trust myself mm -hmm. to like, I feel like when it's the three of us, I'm sort of, I trust myself enough that I won't say things I shouldn't too often, <laughs> but like total strangers throwing stuff at me. Yeah. I, sometimes I get Yeah, like, we need to like vet the questions ahead of time or something <laughs> so they don't ask us things that are just too tempting to answer honestly, but we really shouldn't. <laughs> does that, does that like undermine the spirit of a live call yeah, right. episode? Is this like, is this like when you do the study and pre-register after? If we or say we, it's a live we need episode, a moderator all the who like, so we don't vet the questions ahead of time, but somebody does. Yeah, we should, we should probably be careful because the more we talk about this, someone's going to be like, when are you guys doing that? And then we're going to have to do it. Um, I don't know. Uh, unless you guys actually want to do it. I do, but well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> let's not talk about that now. <laughs> well, anyway, talk listeners, about do you want to do it? <laughs> listeners, if you would like to email us for a not live, not call in uh, response to anything, a dilemma, a situation you're involved in, you can email us. We're letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Um, we are on Twitter at Blackout Pod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Blackout Pod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash Blackout Pod. Our website is www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes. And if you rate us there, that helps people find us. Uh, we're on Spotify now. We're on Stitcher. Uh, you can listen to us on our website. You can 
I don't know, print out a bunch of ones and zeros and matrix it if you want to. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for listening. We, we appreciate you listening and, and uh, um, interacting with us when you're inspired to. Um, so for our main topic today, uh, we were, this is one of those episodes where we didn't like do a whole shitload of homework. Um, <laughs> and we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. Uh, Alexa and Samin both have a beer. Um, I unfortunately don't keep beer in my office or else uh, I would probably have one too. Um, but we thought, uh, we were sort of tossing around ideas and we did an episode on small talk previously. And, you know, Samin even has a paper on small talk. Her paper shows that small talk is correlated with being less happy. Um, uh, and, and it's the most Samin But I think it partially failed ever. to replicate. Yeah, yeah. Remember. But it's like, it's the most, it's the most Samin thing ever. Yeah. Like, this is the one piece of me search I can yeah. clearly <laughs> identify, like, don't engage in small talk, but you know what? We're going to do that. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk today about uh, the classic small talk question. Everybody asks this on job interviews. Do, have you guys, you guys were asked, I'm sure asked this on job interviews. What do you do for fun? Uh-huh. Or else you ask, the, if you're the candidate, you ask people, what do people around here do for fun? Because you want to find out what kind of town it is. So we're going to talk in today's episode after all that set up and prelude about what we do for fun okay alexa let's start with you so what do you do for fun i feel like i always um have trouble answering this question and my answer is usually like i don't know hang out with my friends or like something just like completely boring and true of everyone so i tried to like look at my calendar and i actually document most of my like social engagements in my calendar um <laughs> that's what you partly do for fun. because <laughs> <laughs> partly because like I sometimes I think I'm I could forget them but also like because I feel like it gives me like a sense that I have like work-life balance to look at my calendar and see like social engagements and work engagements and stuff like that um so I took a look at my calendar for like the last couple of weeks um to see what I do outside of work um and there are like a few things that come up so uh I guess like one sort of boring thing is that I, I like work out, um, and lately I've been doing that mostly with friends. So I like go for runs with my friends in the morning. That's one thing I do. Um, the best, maybe the best thing that I've done in the past couple of weeks is, um, so one of my colleagues, Andrea, um, has kids and her son had like a, uh, bring your grandparents to lunch day at school. Um, but his grandparents aren't in town. Um, so I got to go for a lunch with him in his school. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so that was the best. <laughs> and then, uh, were, were people so coming up to I you like, you look so young. I was like extremely <laughs> confused about, um, like where it was supposed to be at various times. So like at the end of this lunch, he went back to his classroom and I thought that I was supposed to leave. Uh, but all of the other like grandparents and stuff were sticking around. And so I was like, okay, maybe I should stick around. And they did like a performance. So I was really glad that I didn't leave. It was like these like five-year-olds like singing a song about the months or something like that. And they like did a dance. Um, so this oh, is like, awesome. this is the peak of my, um, <laughs> my non-work life is that I also have a consistent bachelor in paradise watch party date. Um, so again, my colleague, the same colleague, I go to her house on, on Tuesday nights and we watch Bachelor in Paradise. Um, and then I, tonight I'm gonna go, this is like very Alabama. I'm gonna go on the um, Bama Bell, which is like a, a boat that travels in the Black Warrior River. And we're having, there's a crawfish boil on this boat. Um, so that's what I'm going to do tonight. So I, I, I think I spent a lot of time with other people. So like maybe five nights of the week, I would have like plans with someone to like have a drink or like, um, go to like a, like last weekend I went to, a uh, like a food festival in Birmingham, um, or like something like that. Um, and then is there anything else that was on my... And something that I don't have on my calendar 
but that so like things that I do that that I wouldn't put on my calendar but that I do in my free time are like play the piano and read and watch Netflix I think those are like the three biggest things and eat I eat a lot Okay, I'm, I'm struck. I'm struck by uh, Alexa. Your life sounds very similar to my social life when I was a grad student. So like we had <laughs> a we had a running club and we would go once a week uh, and run around Lake Merritt. And it was funny because there were there were like hardcore marathoners and then there were us recreational. So like the marathoners would do like three laps while the rest of us did one. But then we'd all go like uh, get burgers and beers afterwards. But that was like. It was, so it was just it was totally like a social run or whatever. Um, and then the other thing you said, uh, which was uh, when I was in grad school, was we had a weekly bachelor watching party. No way. I, to this day, very proud that this was the very first season of The Bachelor. And I won the pool for predicting who The Bachelor was going to be. Wow. And I, I didn't come close the second or third season. So like, I think I just got lucky. But I'm like still very proud of, of that. I, yeah, I mean, I've had to deal with my embarrassment um, for my, like, very religious watching of The Bachelor. Um, so I think that I've gotten over it at this point. But Bachelor in Paradise is even more embarrassing than watching The Bachelor. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> but it's, like, I, probably probably by quite a long shot, the television show I have consumed the most of, which is a realization I'm just having now, and I'm a little unhappy about it. <laughs> So I, I haven't watched The Bachelor in a long time, but I saw a clip recently of like some guys fist fighting on the beach. Yeah. Was this from Bachelor in Paradise? That's from Bachelor in Paradise, yes. And it was it was so like it was it was right out of like some cliche movie because it was totally the like <laughs> you know I'm gonna get you, bro, and like hold me back kind of you know like so, I was like people actually do that. Wow. Uh, it's funny because like. What, what? I don't know if this is funny, but when they advertise Bachelor in Paradise, the way that they like try to hook viewers is just by showing like multiple clips strung together of people crying. So it'll be like a <laughs> dude like bawling his eyes out and then the girl like trying to explain something but she's crying too hard, you can't hear her. And it was funny because, so like I said, I, I watched this at my colleague's house and she has kids. And so her daughter who is three um, was watching the other day and was like literally horrified by like watching this show. <laughs> like. <laughs> I think she just had such a strong like I don't know like um empathic contagion reaction and yeah it was <laughs> she's very uncorrupted <laughs> I feel like what little reality tv I, I watch now is well I so uh my son and I a couple like a year ago maybe we were our, as a family we were watching um American Ninja Warrior, which initially, like, I had never watched it. Um, and from the name, like, I didn't know anything about it. And from the name, it sounded like, oh, some silly whatever. Um, but it's actually, like, a legit, like, athletic competition. And it turned out to be this thing that all these parents I knew watched with their kids. And the kids were super into it. And there's actually, like, it's now become this whole phenomenon where um, there's, a, there's a ninja gym in uh in springfield which is next to eugene and they're, they're when we we're on sabbatical in la uh um we signed our son up for ninja classes at a ninja gym there there's these like ninja gyms everywhere that sounds way cooler like... than parkour by the way <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's have you like, not made it... enough fun of me for parkour <laughs> It's like acrobatic obstacle courses. And so it's totally like, you know, if you're into, it's just like like a fun, cool, glamorous version of gym class when we were kids, but like kids are really into it. And, and uh, um, but they do these cool obstacles and they run courses. It's really popular for kids' birthday parties to go to the ninja gym. Um, so that's that. And then the other reality TV I've kind of watched some of is Nailed It. Don't you guys ever watch that? Mm -mm. It's like they they uh, it's like a cooking competition, but so they they'll bring like three people on and then they'll have to like they'll have some like beautiful, elaborate, extremely difficult cake made by like a professional pastry chef. And then they'll give these three people like an hour to recreate it um, and some really crappy instructions. And it's just hilarious because they come up with absolutely hideous looking uh, things and. 
that's my reality TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, do you get to go next, Sanjay? Uh, sure, I'll go next. About what I do for fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was thinking about this. I, I feel like, so there's this thing, it's a very, I think we've talked about this before, the very Eugene thing of like service people, like the barista will just be like, hey, what are you up to this weekend? And I, uh, um, so that's like the version of this. And I'm always like, don't fucking ask me like I'm I'm from New Jersey I don't talk to people about my personal life and and uh, um, but uh, when I do try to answer it sincerely I, I feel like often the answer that I give is like I'm gonna be hanging out with my kid and mm-hmm. that's uh, um, a lot of you know I'm trying to like enjoy the fact that my my son is at that age where he's like big enough and old enough and and smart enough to like do really interesting fun things with but he's not like a surly teenager who doesn't want to have anything to do with his parents so i'm trying to sort of enjoy that you're giving so him ideas right bring... now because he's going to listen to this and he's going to be like, he's totally going to listen he's going to be like oh i can be surly with you dad no he knows he can be surly with me he doesn't need to hear that um yeah so i'm um uh, uh so i spend uh i try to spend a lot of time with my son a lot of you know a lot of weekends um it's sort of like low-key like we go to the arcade and play video games or we we go hiking we went hiking with Samin when she was here a couple weeks ago that was yeah that's really fun um there's Oregon has like some amazing hikings I feel like I've talked about hiking with my son on the podcast before how old was he when you first started to go hike on hikes with him well so I took him hiking when he was a baby and couldn't even walk yet I had one of those backpack carrier things and I would put him in that um and uh that was a lot of fun I used to do that a lot when we were on sabbatical in Austin Um, there was some really nice hiking around there and I would take him out but it was it was kind of weird because you're out in the middle of the woods and he's on my back so I can't see him so I would just have to trust that like he's doing okay because like I can't see him and uh you know so if I'd like pass somebody on the trail sometimes they'd comment like oh looks like he's all tuckered out and I'd be like okay he must have fallen asleep Mm -hmm. or whatever (laughs) you know in the backpack um but so yeah and we took him we started taking him on hikes when he was pretty little um I was remembering because the place that we went with Samin it's like a butte uh close to our house and it's got really nice views at the top but I was remembering the first time we went hiking with him when he was like two or three and he just kept picking up sticks and wanting to whack everything, person and animal within sight with a stick. And so we only got like, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards in and then we had to turn around because he was just going apeshit with the stick. Um, so that was- It's hard uh, to imagine you know, now. We, we sort of built him up, yeah. Mm. But so the, the other thing that, uh, or another thing that I do for fun um, uh, that I've been doing uh, for, number of years now is playing poker and this uh this was a hobby that it just started with a group of friends um very casual and uh i've kind of gotten into poker um and it's it's a like usually weekly game with a group of friends we're very low-key but it's like i i've discovered and i had no appreciation for this before that it's like a really sort of like if you get into the strategy it's really the strategy of it and the the sort of like yeah the 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 level at which like the elite players play is really interesting like i i think i just thought it was like gambling like a slot machine or something when i was younger yeah and you know it's it's like a strategy game it's like chess yeah it's really cool yeah you play poker too right Alexa? well not really i mean but i i am like very fascinated by poker and if i had a group to play poker with i would and I think it's a really interesting game. I remember having like, we may have actually specifically had this conversation on the podcast, but I remember having a conversation with someone about like, which was a more intellectual game, poker or chess. Um, and their stance I think was we like, did talk about that. Yeah. was that like, it wasn't even close. And I was like, poker is like, and they were favoring chess. And I, I almost would go f- with poker, I think. I don't know. I mean, they're both, I think, quite intellectual. So what's interesting to me about poker, I, I, of course, can't help but start thinking about it in relation to stuff involving work because, you know, I just, you know, and it's like, it's this applied probability thing. And it's so it's sort of affected how I think about 
probability because you're, you know, uh, and also how it, you know, I don't do research on like JDM kind of research, but you know, there's all this research on how people think about probabilistic outcomes and decisions under uncertainty. And, you know, it's interesting, for example, like, you know, thinking back a couple of years ago to the election where there were, you know, I think 538's odds calculator had like, it was like, what was it like 60, 40 or 70, 30 in favor of Hillary Clinton. And I just remember like from poker, you're calculating odds all the time. And so I like have a great many experiences of being on the 10 or 20 or 30% of a probabilistic situation to know like, yeah, that shit happens all the time. Like you just develop an intuitive sense of what odds are mm -hmm. because you're sort of calculating them constantly and, and seeing the outcomes. Um, and so I remember people being like, but he was like 67% or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that means a third of the time, yeah. the other way is gonna come out. Right. Um, Do you, so I feel like there's a perception and I'm not, I'm not sure whether this is just among people who don't play poker or if it's really true that a lot of it is reading people. Do you do a lot of reading people or is it mostly like you approach it from like a statistical standpoint? Yeah, that's super interesting because that is the popular perception yeah. and uh, it's very little of the game. Yeah, um, and and I, I'm not particularly good at uh, I mean, I don't play with different people, so I don't have like that experience across many people. I know sort of like there. So what 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 poker people will say is that um, you should go by the, the gameplay strategy. And if it's a really close situation and you have a strong read on someone, you let that be the tiebreaker. Okay. Um, uh, but that it's it's not like sitting there trying to read people's faces. And, and so, right. you know, I've been playing with the same group of people for so long that I just know you know, have some sense of what they do in right. different situations, but I don't, uh, um, well, I don't, yeah, I don't think I really have tells on anybody, yeah. um, but it is funny because that's like in the movies, that's what it's all about, right? Is like, you know, you're, you're reading people's nonverbal. Yeah, or right. It's bluffing you or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So Samin, what do you do for fun? Oh man, I think I have the most boring answer of all of us. Um, for a long time, and I guess still kind of, I've been trying to develop hobbies, so I'll like dabble in something and never stick with it very long at all, like like maybe a few days. <laughs> so I've like tried to pick up, I don't know, three or four different instruments, three or four different sports leagues. Um, I try took an online course on fiction writing. I've joined book clubs. Really? Yeah. My first year as a assistant professor, I, did, I didn't stick with it. Um, I think I did like the yeah. first two weeks of it. Um, yeah, like I just, I suck at sticking with things or at least with hobbies. I don't know why I like give up. I, I took banjo lessons for almost for maybe six months. Um, that was the longest I stuck with anything. I think I tried, I took a harmonica class. I took a photography class. Um, what is that? Is it like you aren't interested enough in the things to, to keep doing them? Or do you have like a problem with hobbies? I have a problem with self-discipline, so I also don't work out. Um, <laughs> I mean, luckily, I don't have a lot of impulses to do things that are bad for me, so I don't have a problem with that kind of self-discipline, but I have a problem with routine and making myself stick to something. Um, mm. Samin, let me, let me flip this around and ask, do you think there are upsides to having tried, a, like it's the fox and the hedgehog, yeah. like you've tried a little bit of a lot of different things, so maybe you like... If you see someone playing the banjo, you have some appreciation for what Except most that is, things or... I didn't even do enough to like be able like I can't <laughs> tell you a single thing about the harmonica except that I remember in one of the classes the instructor kept talking about how you have to keep your lips really moist and you have to suck and blow and you have to keep your tongue out of the way and all these things and I was just like looking around at everybody else in the class and I was like, Really? Really? Nobody? Nobody? <laughs> like I don't <laughs> You guys are all mature enough to handle yeah. this? <laughs> Um, oh so like God. yeah and even I took a photography class and I still couldn't tell you the first thing about photography so I don't I think for someone else maybe there would be that upside I mean I think the upside is that I'm very adaptable to other people's hobbies so when I've like lived with people or been close to people who have their own hobby I can get into those pretty easily because I don't have mm -hmm. 
and so like the, I've been stand up paddleboarding exactly one time with Alexa, which is about as much as I've done any hobby, but I loved it. It was really fun. So like, yeah, now right. my boyfriend yeah. is really into that. And so I'm like, I could develop that hobby. Um, yeah. So I think there, that's the upside of not having my own is that I can go with pretty much whatever. If it's a sports hobby, I can get into that. If it's music, I could get into that. Um, right. But I think for me, that one of the sticking points with some of these things was that I just don't like being around people or having to interact with people that much. So like many of the things I do, like if I look at my schedule for the last week, I slept a ton. Partly I was coming back from a crazy trip where I had to spend many nights in random places. Um, and then I travel a lot, which is very, very solitary, like all the time on planes and trains and whatever. Um, and I watch a lot of Netflix and then I just go and I go, I like being around people, but not, but being anonymous. So like I go in co- to coffee shops um, I like going to coffee shops in other cities. I love doing that or taking public transportation in other cities. Um, yeah, I, be, I think I microdose social activities. <laughs> so like I like going to get takeout food, but then coming back home to eat it. And like the social aspect of going out to get my food is somehow does something for me, but I don't need to like spend a whole couple of hours out and talking to people. I think this is also mm-hmm. why I like Twitter because you can like dip in, interact, and then get out. So if you mm-hmm. just want to act for ten minutes, you can do that. Whereas in like face to face social interactions, you can't really do that. Or I do do that, but it doesn't go over very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I am. I, I just I, not to like do any pot stirring, but I am so interested to see when two of you are living together when uh, Mm. alexa's on sabbatical Mm -hmm. just like how that goes because this is like this is the anti-alexa yeah except you know like (laughs) alexa is really good at just letting me be so i like being in the same room with alexa or like my mom is like this too like she's a lot like me so when i visit her which is another thing i do a lot she lives an hour and a half two hour drive away from me so like i was there last weekend i'll be there again next week and we just sit in the same room and do our own thing, and I love that. And I, mm-hmm. I think Alexa. No, I'm not. I'm not worried about when it's just the two of you at home. I'm okay. just thinking, like, you know, is is Alexa going to be dragging Samine out against her will, or is she going to like be, ter- you know, getting the social butterfly out of Samine's cocoon? Like, yeah. is is Samine going to? I know, remember I lived get Alexa in a... to like pick up, take out, and run, or like, how's this going to work? I lived work? in Charlottesville. Yeah, I'm really curious too. I lived in Charlottesville for four months um, when Liz Tenney was a grad student there and she was super, super nice and basically became my ambassador to like all her friends in Charlottesville. And our interactions consisted of like nine times out of 10, she would text me and be like, we're going to this place, come join us. And I'd be like, no thanks. And then the 10th time I would come and that was like exactly the right amount <laughs> mm-hmm. for me. But I need to be friends with people who like don't take that personally. Um, yeah. And I think Alexa's pretty good about that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think it'll be good. Yeah. Also, it'll be my last few months in the u.s and in california so i think i'll really appreciate like being made to go out more and explore and do stuff because i think i want to but i don't have any friends so i'm not sure how much in california you mean yeah yeah but i I only have a couple friends yeah i think yeah i think you'll want to go out and then i'll know like some things we could do and i think it'll be okay Mm -hmm. um so so i mean back to the hobbies thing I'm curious that uh, you now know this about yourself, that like you'll try something and abandon it after one lesson or whatever. What keeps you like, how, how come you haven't abandoned trying? Because people ask on job interviews, what do you do for fun? (laughs) 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 Like I'm pretty satisfied. Like you, and you can't answer sleep or like sit on the couch with my dog staring into each other's eyes. (laughs) I'm not one of those crazy dog people, but like today, I would just say that because it, so today I tried to take my dog to the groomer and he just would not have it, but he was on sedatives because I, he had a traumatic experience with the groomer. And so then we came home and he was still on sedatives and he just like sat way too close to me and just like stared in my face for like 20 minutes. And I was really happy to do that for 20 minutes. Um, but you can't <laughs> give that answer when people ask you, what do you do for fun? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe we should, maybe I should just be honest and be like, I hang out by myself and sleep and watch TV and I don't know. I would say read, but that's not even true, really. Sometimes I read, but not very often. Um, I would, I really like playing cards and some board games, but that requires seeing people regularly. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do that enough to be able to have a regular group to do that with. So when you like decide to take banjo lessons or whatever, you really do that like so that you have an answer to give people or do you think like potentially you're going to learn how to play the banjo? I always think I'm going to stick with it and I'm going to like yeah. it. Um, and I, I still like banjo. I know why I didn't stick with it. It's just way too fucking hard. Like if you've never played an yeah. instrument, don't start with the banjo. So then I got a ukulele and that was way easier. So it was more rewarding because I learned how to play a song and like, a few mm-hmm. practices but why didn't I stick with that like it had all the characteristics it's a good answer to the question of like what do you do for fun it's useful like as a social skill like you yeah. can learn to play songs that people actually know it's really fast it's not painful like the banjo which hurts your fingers so I don't know like why if, if I couldn't stick with the ukulele I feel like everything is hopeless I think that <laughs> I think that you and I are pretty similar in that like I think I've tried a lot of things and dabbled in a lot of things and then maybe just like a couple more things have stuck i think but i mean yeah i could i could do a long list of things that i like i think if you have like acquaintances who'll do it with you you'll do it with for me it has to be like a really close friend who wants to that's true so basically i I need to only i need to adopt fiona's hobbies when i move to melbourne that's what i'll do like whatever she does for fun i'll just do that i'm sure that her hobbies are super cool because she is super cool um yeah, I was just gonna say. I think Maybe the, I can be I think the only like hobby really that I have is playing the piano. Like everything else is sort of like I don't know if running counts as a hobby, um, but like everything else is. Like, I did feel pretty gratified today though when I went to the coffee shop that I go to a lot, and the guy, the owner, was we were talking about like when I'm gonna move to Australia and stuff, and then I don't know how it came. He's like yeah, you used to always order the Valley Veggie and then you started ordering the Berry Blitz and now you've been ordering the Berry Blitz for like two years. And I was like, at least I'm making an impression on the person at the coffee shop that I go to all the time. That counts <laughs> as a social relationship, right? He knows what I order. And when I stopped ordering one thing and started ordering another thing. I mean, I guess traveling is my hobby and that takes up so right. much of my time. And, and Twitter is your way. hobby. That's true. But traveling, like, honestly... I, I just love it so much and I feel bad because it's so bad for the environment, but it, it is like what brings joy and meaning to my life. Like I had mm-hmm. a trip canceled and so I was facing like being in Davis for three weeks straight or something, which almost never happens. And so then I was like, what am I going to do? And I was like, oh, I'll drive to Eugene and see Sanjay. Mm-hmm. And that was so much fun. Um, yeah. And I also saw a high school friend of mine that I haven't seen in a long time. I don't know. I find that so rewarding both. And also, so seeing the friends and the drive, like the drive was just so it's a beautiful mm-hmm. drive. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I like, I like being alone, but not doing, not doing completely nothing, like doing something slightly more than nothing. I really uh-huh. enjoy that. If I could drive as a hobby and not <laughs> like hurt the environment, I would, I love driving so much. Yeah. I like, driving, I like almost music. all forms of transportation. I love them. I don't think I really like flying, but I want to I mean, take the fine. train across Australia in both directions. I want to do the like east-west train, and I want to do the north-south train. That sounds super fun. I'm so excited. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I guess I guess I do have a hobby, travel. But I mean, yeah, I guess all hobbies kind of sound generic when you just say them in one word. But so how do you? I mean, we started by talking about this is like a common small talk thing. Like, how do you? It's funny how I, I feel like this happens a lot where, yeah, the, the kind of like the actual literal answer isn't that interesting. But once you get talking about the thing, so like saying I like travel. Yeah. I was like, OK, that's nice. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I like, you know, uh, playing the piano. Oh, okay. yeah. You know, like how do you how do you either as the asker or the ASCII like turn that into an actual interesting conversation. I feel like I'm rehashing our small talk episode. Uh-huh. This is like super interesting to me because once you get somebody talking a lot of times, I mean, do you just like, say like, what is it you like about that? Yeah. Or like, I think like when people, when something is somebody's hobby, I feel like you think about it enough that if you, I don't know, if you just like ask a little bit more about it, you'll like find out some like weird thing that they think about. Like, like with you and poker, right? Like, Saying that you play poker sounds pretty, like, whatever. But then if you're like, so tell me about poker, then you're going to say something that's that's interesting because you think about it a lot, probably. Poker is I don't know totally what I would say how, about piano. 
Poker is totally how I understood the justify your alpha paper and like Nyman Pearson hypothesis mm -hmm. testing because it's all just decisions with error rates exactly perfect small talk answer <laughs> yeah yeah well you know it's it's perfect small talk with like you know seven people in the world or something right. like that like people who know enough about poker and Nyman Pearson hypothesis testing I think to like have an in interesting conversation for when people are like really really into their hobby like people who run all the time or go ballroom dancing every oh, weekend or right. whatever that can be boring no, but what I what I really want to ask them, and I don't, because I'm not like that, and I don't have that hobby, that intensive a hobby, is like, what void are you filling with that? Like, what happens when you don't do it? <laughs> what are the monsters <laughs> that come out when you don't do that? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to ask that of most people, but... Yeah. I don't know how... To, I'm bad at small talk. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks like, uh, it look like... It looks like the beers might be running out on of the, the call so should we uh should we wrap this up yeah let's wrap it up all right thank you everybody for listening to the black goat and we will talk to you next time mm -hmm.